the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into uh, Hour 3, or as I like to call it, the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. It is Friday, and we always like to uh, start your weekend early by shining the spotlight on arts and entertainment. And we do that this hour with uh, my guest, who is... um, a librarian and archivist at the Los Angeles Public Library and the author of a new book about um, Jane Russell. It's called Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend by Christina Rice, who joins me by phone. Hi, Christina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Why Jane Russell? Yeah, well, you know, I, I had uh, published a book a few years back on actress Anne Dvorak, who's, who's my personal favorite, and it was this kind of massive odyssey of a passion project that took 15 years, and when it finally came out, I was exhausted and thought that would be the only book I would ever want to write on, on an actress. <laughs> you know, but after I had some space, I thought, well, gosh, I, I know how to do this now. I, I think I could do it again. I wasn't quite sure who to write about because so many of my favorites already had books about them. So I went to my publisher, University Press of Kentucky, and said, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm going to do this again. Who do you, you know? Do you have any suggestions? And they came back with Jane Russell, and you know, she was somebody I was hyper aware of. Gentlemen prefer blondes with Marilyn Monroe is one of my all-time favorite movies, but I didn't know a whole lot about her beyond that. I was very surprised to see that other than her own 1985 memoir, nobody had written a book about her. So I thought, okay, I think it's, it's time to, to write about Jane. I, I can do this again. You know, for so many people, she was 
maybe like Marilyn Monroe or, um, uh, oh, and her name just jumped right out of my head, and I just uh, interviewed somebody who did a book about her. Um, uh, oh, Jane, Jane Mansfield? Man yeah, Jane Mansfield. Um, she was thought of by so many as kind of a pinup girl. And she was, you know, for, for many years she was. Her career was launched on what is, you know, arguably the most notorious ad campaign for a film, The Outlaw. Um, you know, Howard Hughes's uh, Western opus that took almost a decade to be <laughs> released widely. Um, and the, the backbone of the publicity for that film was Jane, you know, and so there were so many photos that were released. So, you know, very few films released with Jane throughout the 1940s, but so many photographs and you know she started being promoted right as the United States was about to get into World War II so she ended up being a major pinup she was one of the favorite pinups of World War II so you know even though Hughes was just doing weird things with her career doing not a whole lot with her career as an actress um, those photos and, and her kind of status as a pinup really kind of sustained her throughout the 1940s until in 1948 she gets to do the pale face with Bob Hope. And aside from the alliteration that's um, <laughs> in the title of your book, Mean, Moody, mm -hmm. Magnificent, and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, um, can, why that title? What was it about Jane Russell that stood out as Mean, Moody, Magnificent, and, and what, what did you find fascinating about the way she was marketed? Yes, yeah, so the that title, Mean, Moody, Magnificent, was one of many taglines that were used on posters and advertisements for The Outlaw. And as soon as I saw it, I just thought uh. it just kind of jumped off the page. So <laughs> I don't know that I would I would call Jane literally mean and moody, certainly magnificent. Um, but The Outlaw and that publicity campaign is just, so much a part of her story, how she was marketed is such a huge part of her story and a huge part of her career. So it wasn't only the outlaw, but, you know, how Howard Hughes, you know, presented her to the world, you know, throughout her film career, I, I just found as, as fascinating. I don't know that we would know who Jane Russell was without that marketing. And so I, I wanted to explore it. And a lot of the book is exploring, you know, how she was presented to the public, um, and just how it how it sustained her. But I also wanted to explore kind of how it impacted her. Because, you know, The Outlaw has been written about a lot over the years. But when I went back and looked at how it had been covered, she always tended to be just treated as an inanimate object. Like, here is this, you know, kind of often vulgar publicity, really focused on Jane's bus line. And I really wanted to explore how did that impact her and how was she able to tolerate it? Did it bother her? Because that's what, you know, it, it followed her her entire life. You know, 70 years later, she's being asked about photos taken in the early 40s. Um, and so I just wanted to see how the marketing, not only how it impacted her career, but how it impacted her as a person. Where was Jane from and how did she get discovered, as they say? Yeah, she was, she was born in Bemidji, and um, apologies to anybody if I'm mispronouncing that, in Minnesota, but only lived there for a few days. Um, her parents were actually living in Canada at the time, but at a very young age, she moved to Southern California, 
So she is a Valley girl. So she lived in Burbank for many years, and then her family uh, moved to Van Nuys. And she eventually built a home in Sherman Oaks. So, you know, from the 1920s until the 70s, she was a San Fernando Valley girl. And so she started off um, modeling for Tom Kelly. So he was a photographer who I think uh, many people now know as the one who shot the nude photos of Marilyn Monroe that ended up um, in the first issue of Playboy and they were on the Golden Dreams calendar. Jane was actually a model for him, but she modeled clothes. So her, her photos for him are actually pretty modest. And one of her photos, which was actually a close-up photo of her face, it was a very tightly framed photo of her face, not her figure, was hanging on the wall of his studio. And an agent, Levis Green, came in, and he would sometimes visit Tom Kelly, kind of um, scoping out the models as prospective clients. At the time, he knew that Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks, who was originally the director of The Outlaw, were looking for an unknown for the film. He saw that photo of Jane and took it to, to Howard Hawks, who gave her a screen test, and she, she got the role. But she moved to Southern California with her family not to become an actress. No, she moved, oh, she was, I think, two or three years old. She was very young when she moved here. So, yeah, her, her family re- relocated. So she, she essentially was, was raised here from, from a very young age. So she really was a Valley girl. She, was, she went to schools there. and. Oh, yeah, she, she went to Van, yeah, she is a graduate of Van Nuys High School. So, yeah, Jane was absolutely a Valley girl. How did she start modeling? I, I mean, was there something about her looks, her figure, that prompted her to think that she could leverage that into work? Not, not really. I mean, Jane was not somebody who ever had a tremendous amount of ambition. And I think she always joked how you know, her, the the subtitle of her book should have been like the queen came through the back door because she just kind of stumbled onto things. So she actually had a friend who um, was working at a business in Hollywood. Tom Kelly saw the friend, asked the friend, do you want to come model for me? She said, yeah, I guess so. Can, can I, you know, I have another friend who might be good for this. Can I bring her? She brought Jane along and Tom Kelly said, yeah, yeah, I think you, you would be good at this. Um, Jane did take some acting classes. I think her, her mother had been an actress. Um, briefly on stage um, and you know I think kind of nudged Jane in that direction didn't really insist on it so you know and plus growing up in Southern California you know she had friends with parents in the movie industry so it was always kind of there yeah maybe this is something she could do she never really pursued it um, aggressively but I think you know because you know she, she was gorgeous it just kind of happened and what is the significance of remembering Hollywood legends? Is it I is mean, it I, pure nostalgia, or or are there lessons to be learned? I think it's you know a little bit of both. You know, I'm somebody who has always been fascinated by Golden Age Hollywood from from the time I was really young. Oh, I'm I'm with uh, you on that, Christina. I you know I I love doing these, you know, deep dives on you know former Hollywood celebrities, but but I wonder in in this day and age of of uh, entertainers and and celebrities becoming very political. Mm-hmm. If there's 
some something about the golden age celebrities that might serve as models for present day celebrities yeah that's that's an interesting question um because you know so so many of the stars back then i think were their their images on screen and off were, were carefully crafted by the movie studios and so i don't know if we really got who they were with jane it was a little bit different um you know howard hughes micromanaged how she looked on screen and how she appeared in advertising. He didn't dictate how she could present herself off screen. And so, you know, Jane was a, you know, she, she was a political figure to, in, in many respects. You know, she was, she was very spiritual. So she was always very outspoken about her faith. Um, you know, later on, um, you know, she did have very right leaning views. And so she sometimes would spout those out. I don't know that it always endeared her to a lot of people. Um, there, there was an interview she gave. <laughs> it probably didn't like around, play well in Hollywood. You know, it the whole, it didn't seem to hinder her in any way while she had a film career. Because the thing about Jane is, whatever her ideology might have been, she did seem to genuinely love people. She didn't seemed to judge people and she got along with a lot of people and it seems like the the the, the right the really strong right-leaning views tended to come after um her hollywood career was over so it was more like in the 70s 80s and 90s you know interestingly you know jane was a major advocate for adoption um she had a foundation for over 40 years that you know uh, raised money for international social services later on um got involved with lobbying Congress to change laws. And so when it came to her foundation, you know, she was a strong advocate of kind of social services, um, which didn't always kind of align with these right-leaning views. So she, she was a contradiction in so many ways. But there were things that she said in, you know, a couple, like in inter- couple of interviews later on that still get brought up. So um, if she was around today, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that she would be particularly quiet you know this day and age i I think it's just the kind of the the world we live in where it's so easy to spout off you know to put our opinions in the universe and we all not i don't know if we all do but a lot of us think that everybody needs to hear our opinion so (laughs) if you know if if social media was around in the 40s and 50s you know we might have different attitudes to people back then because you know we all tend to be kind of enamored with our opinions i think i I like the way you put that um christine i have to take a uh a break here can you stand by for a few minutes so we can talk some more sure my pleasure all right my guest is christina rice she uh is the author of a new book about uh jane russell called Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend. Christina is also a librarian and archivist at the Los Angeles Public Library. Um, We're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 FM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. Um, If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll have more with uh, author Christina Rice straight ahead. 
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of a new book about Jane Russell, Christina Rice, who joins me by phone. Christina, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and uh, sorry to make you sit through all that. <laughs> Absolutely no problem. Um, just before the, the break, Christina, you mentioned we were talking about um, uh, Jane Russell's uh, political leanings and um, that she may have been very outspoken in today's uh, world of social media. But what about the the media of her time? And in in what now? And I want to go back and and restate the title of the book because it, it's literally mean, moody, magnificent Jane Russell and the marketing of a Hollywood legend. And I want to talk about uh, the marketing of. Jane Russell and her relationship with Howard Hughes. Yeah, uh, yeah. As I mentioned, it's it's just so fascinating because Howard Hughes, you know, she was really a favorite of his, and and she, you know she, she was very loyal to him. She was under contract to him for I think, over thirty years, and that he, you know, he he did market her aggressively. He marketed her physical assets. He micromanaged her costumes on screen, and <clears throat> how her advertisements went. But when it came to Jane, you know, presenting herself to the world off screen, he didn't seem to muzzle her at all. You know, she was allowed to be herself. So he didn't seem to have these expectations or illusions that <clears throat> the Jane Russell, the <clears throat> excuse me, the, the sex symbol on screen was who Jane Russell was in real life because she wasn't. So, you know, she was always very free to kind of present her, you know, who, who she really was. I mean, she was somebody, you know, as magnificent as she was on screen and as glamorous. Man, like Jane oozed glamour on screen. She was every inch the movie star from, you know, the top of her head to the tips of her toes and could just, you know, wear the, the, the stunning custom-made gowns. Off screen, she preferred to be in jeans. You know, she was very unpretentious. She, um, like, just maintained very strong friendships and relationships her entire life and was very down to earth and again was very open about her spiritual faith um very unpretentious and you know i think that was one of the reasons why she was able to tolerate the publicity which could be outrageous which could be you know i think even by today's standards you sometimes have to step back and go oh my gosh i can't believe they're you know they 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 did that um, I don't think she always liked it. I think often she didn't agree with it. At times, she would draw the line and go toe-to-toe with Howard Hughes. Not often, but she would. But I think because she had such a strong sense of self and a very strong support system for the people around her, she was able to deal with the publicity and you know, was able to use the celebrity it brought her to do the things she wanted to do, and that was primarily, you know, run her WAIF Foundation, which advocated for um, international adoption for years. So, you know, she had, she had a tenuous relationship with her publicity, but still managed to do it, and just didn't let the industry kind of destroy her like so many other people um, before and after her have. Well, Howard Hughes's interest in her um really created a lot of talk didn't it because he he became such a recluse and 
it it would seem almost as if in his quirky personality that he didn't like people, but he really seemed to like her. He, I get the impression he adored her. You know, she, you know, Jane was such a no nonsense person and she kind of always was. So she was always very straightforward with him. Um, you know, once she kind of made a name for herself, like on the back of his publicity, her agent, you know, she was with MCA and Lou Wasserman wanted her to just break her contract and leave because he thought he could get her a better deal. And she, she wouldn't do it. Like she felt like she had signed this contract with Hughes and she was going to remain loyal to him. And he appreciated that because I don't know that there were a lot of people, you know, in his circle that he could truly trust. So I think they had a tremendous amount of respect for each other. I think they baffled each other a little bit um, and could, you know, <laughs> irritate each other. But I think there was just genuine affection. You know, and, and ultimately, um, he gives her a 20-year contract where she's making $1,000 a week, whether she makes movies for him or not. And most of that contract, she was not making movies for him. And he was fine doing it. Well, um, her film career stalled for almost a decade. What was going on there? <laughs> to me, that was one of the most astounding things to discover that, you know, as much as Jane's photo was being, cir- your photos being circulated around the globe for the entirety of the 1940s, she only had three movies released. So that was, you know, The Outlaw, uh, Young Widow, and Pale Face. And a lot of that, that was Howard Hughes. So he... You know, why he chose to get back into film production in 1940 on the eve of the U.S. getting involved in, you know, World War II when his, his main focus was aerospace is beyond me. It makes no sense, but much of Howard Hughes makes no sense. And he just kind of, del- he delayed the release of The Outlaw. Um, I think he felt he was building up anticipation for it. You know, and he didn't want her showing up in other movies before The Outlaw came out and... It's just very strange how much he, he delayed that film. And I, I think it's a huge testament, though, to the kind of his marketing prowess. And I think just Jane's sheer, you know, her personality, her likability, that despite that, she did end up having a pretty good career in the early 50s. Because, you know, as I say in the book, like, she should have just been kind of a joke and a footnote, you know, because that outlaw publicity was so outrageous. But, you know, I think because of Howard Hughes and despite of Howard Hughes, Despite him, she became, you know, she became a movie star. And she sang Christian music. Um, How much of a singer was she really? And, you know, we spend so much time uh, when we consider someone like Jane Russell looking at her filmography. Is there a discography? There is a discography. Jane loved to sing. I think she loved singing more than she did acting. Um, she did actually a lot of recording over the years, you know, starting in the mid to late 1940s. She recorded with Kay Kaiser. She had um, a, a set of 78 recordings that she put out. Some of her, you know, she recorded for some of her films. So Gentlemen Prefer Blondes had a formal soundtrack. Uh, the French Line did. And then um, she put out an album in 1958. And then she did end up um, recording with Connie Haynes and Beryl Davis. 
and sometimes Della Russell and sometimes Rhonda Fleming. And so they had a, you know, trio or sometimes quartet that sang um, Christian songs. And they would take, you know, like Christian traditionals and kind of make them a little bit more poppy. And they did uh, some singles. They did, a, you know, a full-length album. They toured around the world singing these songs. Um in dresses designed by you, Mr. Blackwell, if you remember him. So, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So Jane, yes, yeah, she loved singing. There are lots of recordings of her. Um, you know, and she had a nightclub act she developed and did for years. And she was doing that nightclub act up in Santa Maria, like right up until the, the time that she passed away. She absolutely loved, loved singing. Um, her first film that she sang in is, is Montana Bell. Howard Hughes was hesitant to let her sing, but once he realized that she could certainly carry a tune, she sang in almost all of her films from then on. Um, I, I just I found that fascinating. When did, when did Jane Russell pass away? Uh, she passed away in two thousand and eleven, so just shy of her ninetieth birthday. And what was she doing in the later years of her life? You know, she she did lots of interviews. So, you know, she was this very tangible connection to both Marilyn Monroe, you know, because of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Howard Hughes. Sure. And because of that, she was, I think, very much in demand for interviews, but she was always very gracious. And she, she loved Marilyn and she loved Howard Hughes, never said a bad word about either one of them. So she was always very active. She, you know, she would do conventions sometimes. I actually saw her once at a, at a collector show and I was too intimidated to go up and meet her because <laughs> I didn't know what I would say to her. So I, I remember just kind of me and a friend just kind of standing at the back of the room, like staring at her and gawking. So she did that. Um, and then she, she, you know, she at one point moved to Santa Maria. Um, where one of her, her kids was and, you know, w was kind of bored and felt that there wasn't a lot for the, um, the older set there. And that's when she did started doing her nightclub act at a hotel, you know, just, just to keep her, herself busy. Um, but she was like always out there and just always very gracious with her time and gracious with sharing her memories and, you know, often got asked the same questions over and over and over again. Um, I think, but was, was always very gracious. What I, I would have been like you, Christina, if if I ever saw her somewhere or had an opportunity to speak to her, I'm not sure I would know what to say. I, you know, I'd I'd be one of those uh, starstruck uh, characters that comes up. Oh, it's, you're you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. What do you? Yeah. What What do you say? Like, what What do you say to somebody like Jane Russell that they haven't already heard? You know, a million times. So, you know, in retrospect, oh, I probably should have just gone and gotten her autograph, but I would have made an absolute fool of myself. <laughs> I would have been tongue-tied. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think I would, too. And I'm not always starstruck. I'm usually fairly comfortable around celebrities, but there's something about that legendary status that, it, that, that makes them seem unapproachable whether they are or not. Exactly. I remember years ago when I first started working at Central Library, Julie Andrews actually came. She had just written a children's book, and she did a program for the librarians. Oh, wow. And we got to meet her after. You know, and I get up there, I, I said, hi, how are you? Like, I, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And I still look back and think, oh, my God, what, what a dope. All I could say to Julie Andrews was, hi, how are you? But that's probably what I would have done with Jane. Hello. How are you? <laughs> 
you said she kept getting the same questions over and over from you know when she would do interviews and and she um and bore them gracefully but what what were some of the questions that that people would ask I mean, they would ask, well, she would often get asked about this, the, the bra that Howard Hughes designed for her for the outlaw, which she actually didn't wear. You know, Howard Hughes's goal was um, to, for, for Jane to look like she didn't wear a bra. And so he designed something that supposedly the, the seams wouldn't show. And, you know, she, she put it on and said, oh, my God, forget it. And she, like, threw it under the cot in her dressing room and just stuffed Kleenex over the, the seams of her bra, and nobody knew the difference. So she would get asked about the bra a lot. <laughs> she would ask, "What you know? What is it like working with Marilyn? What was it like working with Howard Hughes? Did did you like working with Bob Hope?" So a, a lot of those same things. You know, she would get asked about the outlaw publicity, and you know, at, at one point um, there's an interview where somebody says, "Well, what were some of those taglines for the outlaw?" And that was like one of the few times I think where she just like rolled her eyes and said, "I don't remember." You know, somebody <laughs> she like really kind of like, "Oh God." I'm not doing this anymore. Um, but yeah, so it was, you know, I, I would find a new interview and I'd be like really excited. I was like, oh, good, a new interview to draw from. And it's like, oh, they're just asking her the same questions. <laughs> I've already, I just need to figure out like wh- which one of the variations of these same answers, you know, do I want to put in the book? What about the the ad that she did for Playtex? Oh, yes. So Jane, I think a lot of us, particularly um, from, from you know, my generation, because I, I was a kid in, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, we knew her as, as the Playtex bra spokesperson. Um, I don't know whose idea it was. You know, it, it is very tongue-in-cheek, and I think it is, you know, a testament to Jane that given her career of publicity focused on her bus line, that she was willing to become a spokesperson for a bra commercial. Um, but she was for years, so she did it for, you know, like a decade and became very well known. I do think she really believed in the product, though, you know, and I think Jane was somebody who, she, she never felt threatened by other women. I think she wanted to see other women succeed. I think she also wanted women to have really good support. So I think she was fine doing, doing those <laughs> rock commercials. I, I, it just it seemed funny to me, and, and I remember those commercials, and it it just seems funny to me that someone that she wouldn't say seriously you want me to to do bra commercials it just it 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 just seems like something that she would not have wanted to do yeah but again i think jane you know i think she she never took herself too seriously and you know i i think it was legitimately a good business opportunity so around the time those um that those commercials were offered to her was when her, her 20 year contract with Howard Hughes was ending. You know, and she wasn't really, she wasn't working in film by that time. And so, you know, it was a good business opportunity. And I just think Jane, you know, always had a pretty healthy attitude towards herself and her image. Um, that yeah, that she, that she was able to do it. But again, I think if she, if, if she thought it was a lousy product, she probably wouldn't have. But I think she seriously believed in it. So, you know, and it's just it's just funny that 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 was her introduction to so many people. And there's you know a very charming story in the book where you know Jane's at a public event in the 1980s, and the little boy comes up to her and asks to take a photo of her. And she looks at him and she says, "Why do you want to take a photo with me? You don't know who I am." And he said, "Yes, I do. You're the bra lady." Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. And and I was thinking, you know, as you were talking about the the how it fit into her career 
and that, you know, it was a good gig. And I was thinking in my head, well, and she was certainly in shape for it. But that got me thinking, was she really conscious about her physicality? Did she, you know, exercise and, and try to stay in shape and diet and all that kind of stuff? Was she really concerned about those things? Or did she just naturally age well? I get the impression she just naturally aged well. Um, you know, she seemed to be kind of naturally athletic to begin with. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know for certain, but I certainly didn't come across anything that indicated that she very obsessively exercised or very obsessively watched her figure. I think she, you know, I think she was fortunate. She was one of the fortunate ones um, that just like very naturally had this, you know, athletic physique because um, she, she did age fabulously. I don't think she got plastic surgery. I, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think Jane was just naturally uh, very fortunate in her physicality. Well, it just seems like you would have come across it in your research if she'd had a trainer or if she'd followed, you know, a special diet of some kind, if she was, you know, really conscious of it and had a regiment of some sort. No, I didn't really come across anything like that. She hated to cook, so she always had other people cooking for her. So <laughs> maybe that had something to do with it. Um, what about her um, her romantic life? You mentioned that um, that she moved to be near one of her one of her kids. How many kids did she have, and was she married a lot of times? So she she was married three times. Um, her first marriage was to Robert Waterfield, the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. Um, they had met in high school. They didn't start dating until after he had graduated, but that, that was her, you know, kind of childhood sweetheart. Um, they got married in 1943 and, you know, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty contentious marriage. They, they divorced in the late 1960s, and they adopted three children. Um, she got married a second time to an actor, uh, Roger Barrett, who unfortunately, a couple of months after they got married, had a heart attack and passed away, which was um, devastating. He had a heart attack right oh, in front of her. It was awful. devastating. And I, I don't know that um, Jane ever actually recovered from that. It, it was just so devastating. And then... Um, she got married a third time in, I think, 1974 or 75 to, to John Peoples, who, who was a real estate guy. And they were married until um, his death in, in the late 1990s. So she was married those three times. Well, this is, this is fascinating. Um, and, and I guess for the listeners, uh, I'll remind them, the name of the book is Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend. And uh, it's written by Christina Rice, who is a uh, librarian and archivist at the Los Angeles Public Library. Um, Christina, do you have the bug now for writing future uh, books about Hollywood legends? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have no, I feel like Jane, yeah, I feel like with Anne, I was exhausted, Anne Dvorak, I was exhausted when I finished that book, and with Jane Russell, um, I certainly feel exhilarated and, and ready to, to tackle the next subject. 
Well, uh, let me let me ask you just briefly about being a librarian and archivist at the Los Angeles Public Library. Um, you know, I lived out uh, in um, in the Valley for you know, about a year, mm-hmm. and it just seemed like everybody I talked to, in one way or another, was or wanted to be connected to the business. Mm-hmm. Is the Los Angeles Public Library really kind of the the Hollywood archive? I feel like in many ways it is. You know, I'm I'm fortunate enough that I do. You know, the the the, the system. It's a very big library system with branches throughout the city. But I am fortunate enough to work at Central Library, which is in downtown Los Angeles, and I do feel like it is just. It's a crown jewel of, I think, of libraries in general. I think it's also a crown jewel of the city in general. So um, that has been my home away from home for 15 years now. And I feel, um, yeah, I feel very fortunate to be there. And we're open again after being closed for over a year. The library is open again. So I encourage people to please come. Yeah, we have limited hours, but please come visit us. But yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm so fortunate, and I wouldn't be able to write these books without the the collections in that library, and more importantly, without the other librarians in the building who know how to navigate these collections. I so was going to say, I bet uh, you know, just the fact that you are a librarian and archivist makes uh, research a lot easier. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does because, you know, just my, my job is to know where to find things for other people. So um, that, that naturally makes it easier to find things for myself. You know, but when I get stumped, you know, I, I just have to, you know, stick my head out of my office and say, hey, I need help with this. And you know, there's like somebody in the building um, that's going to be able to help me. You know, the, the Jane's Waif Foundation is such a big part of her story. And, um, even though it got a lot of press coverage because she would have these big gala events, um, I had a lot of trouble kind of finding the nuts and bolts of how WAIF worked. And so I went to one of my fellow librarians in our social sciences department. He went into their file. They had an adoption folder in their vertical files. Wow. And it had a whole bunch of information about WAIF. It had you know a program from their Silver Jubilee that had the list of all of the, you know, the chapters and the directors, and it had transcripts of congressional testimony. I would have never thought that that we would have that. And so there, librarians are always able to pull rabbits out of their hats. So I, I, <laughs> I feel cool. very lucky to, yeah, to, 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 to be among them and, and to be one of them. Um, it's an absolute joy. Well, Christina, um, we're just about out of time. I'm having so much fun talking with you. Um, <laughs> and I hope we get to do it again sometime. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and and your work, uh, past, present, and now sounds like future. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a website? I do. I, I have three websites, actually. I, I have my author website, which is ChristinaRiceWrites.com. I do have a website for the Jane book. That is janerussellbiography.com. And then there is my, my Anne Dvorak website, annedvorak.com, which is celebrating its 19th birthday this year. So I've been writing the Anne Dvorak website for a very long time. Um, I'm on Twitter at Christina Rice and on Instagram at Jane Russell Bio. And this year, um, you know, I, I am a compulsive collector 
And so I bought way more Jane Russell memorabilia than I ever needed for the book. So every day <laughs> this year, I am posting something about Jane because I just have, <laughs> I used 80 photos in the book and probably have like 500. So oh, wow. um, if you want a daily dose of Jane, you can go to Twitter or Instagram for that. Well, Christina, thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. How's Christina Rice? We'll have more straight ahead. (laughs) This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. 
Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. More than one audience has been taken unaware by the humor of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Here is Senator Goldwater accepting the nomination for President of the United States at the annual mock convention of Washington's exclusive Alfalfa Club. Well, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me since Walter Ruther made me an honorary auto worker. (laughs) Gentlemen, gentlemen, if my voice trembles a little at this historic moment, I'm sure you'll understand. It takes my breath away, even though I feel the White House is now ready for me since Jacqueline remodeled it in an 18th century decor. And frankly, I I feel it's a double honor since I've never even been to Harvard. But members of this convention, this has been a genuine draft, not just the kind felt by reservists. And I've... And I have yielded to it in the sincere belief that no man with a drop of patriotism in his veins could turn down such a golden opportunity to advance his family. Uh, Of course, the, the Goldwater clan is not as large as the Kennedy clan, and my brother Bob doesn't want to be in government. He promised Dad he'd go straight. (laughs) And I wouldn't be truthful if I said that I was fully qualified for the office. I don't play the piano. I seldom play golf, and I never play touch football. But I hope you'll find it in your hearts to accept a president who just sits behind a desk and works. Now, I must take note of the fact here that my opponents call me a conservative. If I understand the word correctly, it means to conserve. Well then, I'm just trying to live up to my name and conserve two things that most need conserving in this country, gold and water.
allow me to turn to my campaign platform, but before I do that, I just want to say that I don't apologize for being a conservative. I can remember where the conservative and mother were clean words. <laughs> but as you all know, I've argued for some time that we should do away with the cumbersome and lengthy, unmeaningful and platitudinous promises that the platforms of both parties have become. We need bold, brief statements that all Americans can understand. Now, the first plank fits neatly on one page, but I think it's basically sound and honest. It will mean the same thing to you whether you live in the North or the South, whether you're a farmer in Maine or an industrial worker in California. It says, and I ask you to play, pay close attention, elect Goldwater. <laughs> now, gentlemen, that's it. No nonsense, no shilly-shallying, no hair-splitting, just elect Goldwater. It's got a nice ring to it that I sort of like. And is there anyone, from the highest to the lowest, from the ordinary school child to the lowliest Harvard professor, who can possibly mistake this meeting? I'll go even further. Is there anyone in this convention hall who doesn't understand it? <laughs> now, members of this convention, the other two planks deal with labor, education, foreign policy, and the farm problem. Here's plank number two. Elect Goldwater. <laughs> now, you may notice a certain similarity between the first plank and the second. And I want you to know that that was deliberate. It's been my experience that the public is confused if you offer too many issues. The thing to do is to get a hold of a good one and stick to it. Hammer it home. Repetition, gentlemen, is the way Madison Avenue sells toothpaste and soap, and it's the way the new frontier stays in the limelight. But when repetition occurs at the White House, and it has since 1932, it's not a sales pitch. It's a giveaway. You don't even have to guess the price. And now, gentlemen, for the final plank. Plank number three. This is the bell ringer, and it's even shorter. It just says, ditto. <laughs> there, gentlemen, I suggest that you have a platform in five words. Elect Goldwater. Elect Goldwater. Ditto. Just to keep things symmetrical, I think I'll hold the budget down to five figures. Jane Mansfield's for openers, and I'll accept nominations for the other four. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Dimes and quarters Slinging eggs and hay 
be black and strong A jukebox of scratchy records I'll play them all night long Eternal It's up to me again Here's a hot top on your coffee Honey, you're a mess I ain't your wife, I ain't your mama But I'll do, I guess Eternal it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program and I want to say thanks to all of my guests Uh, first uh, this last hour talking with uh, Christina Rice about her book Mean Moody Magnificent Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend before that a salute to Juneteenth I hope everybody has a great Juneteenth weekend now that it's an official uh, national holiday. We talked uh, during the second hour with Will Shelton about his book, The Silent Agreement, and we kicked it off with uh, Michael Luberis and Janet Haley from the Flint Repertory Theater talking about their uh, project, The Flint Mural Plays. See you Monday. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.